One of the most fascinating aspects about traveling to the land of Israel is the opportunity to interact with the Jewish people who are there. It is fascinating, but sad. It is sad because the Jewish people, for the most part, are completely blind to the truth of Messiah Jesus. Some see him as a good rabbi who went off the deep end and got himself killed on a trip to Jerusalem. Others see him as a charlatan who claimed to be something he wasn't. Still others refuse to believe he ever existed. The Jewish people are a unique people in that they are the only people on the planet who are bound together by what they don't believe. Think about that. About the only thing some Jewish people have in common with other groups of Jewish people is the fact that they don't believe Jesus was the Messiah. You see, some Jewish people are very religious. Some are religious only in their traditions or their holidays. Some aren't religious at all. And some are even atheists, as strange as that may sound. But the one thing they all have in common, and the one thing that identifies them as as being Jewish, is the fact that they don't believe Jesus was the Messiah. It's a strange way to be characterized as a people group. And because they do not believe Jesus was the Messiah, they avoid anything to do with Jesus. And in fact, many, most, will not even say his name, but rather refer to him as that man. That man. They, they want nothing to do with Jesus. They avoid anything to do with him. They don't even want to consider the evidence. This is even true for the very religious Jews. You might find it interesting to know that many religious Jews are forbidden to read portions of Hebrew Scripture or the Old Testament, portions that clearly point to Jesus of Nazareth. One such passage is Isaiah chapter 53, and I want us to turn there by way of introduction this morning. So before we turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 1, turn with me back in Hebrew Scripture to Isaiah chapter 53. As I was just mentioning a moment ago, this is a chapter of Scripture that is utterly foreign to the vast majority of the Jewish people because they refuse to read it, or their rabbis forbid them to read it, and many of them even deny that it was in Isaiah's book or scroll when he first wrote it. And the reason for that is because this chapter clearly finds its fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth. Isaiah 53 is one of the most descriptive passages in all the Bible concerning what happened that day almost 2,000 years ago when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross. And the amazing thing about that is the fact that Isaiah wrote these words some 700 years before it happened, and he wrote it as if he were standing at the foot of the cross and witnessing it personally. Of course, there is a sense in which he did witness the crucifixion 
because the Holy Spirit of God granted him the privilege of looking ahead in time to be able to write these famous words. One of the things unique about this description of the death of Christ is that it is a beautiful blend of the physical aspects of the death of Christ and the spiritual significance. Some of the descriptions we have in the Bible of the death of Christ primarily emphasize the physical suffering and pain, such as the accounts we have in the Gospels. Now, they, they do give some glimpses of the spiritual significance of the death of Christ. For example, Matthew records the fact that the veil of the temple was torn in two. That obviously is portraying some spiritual significance. John records the statement, it is finished or paid in full. So there are some glimpses of the spiritual significance of the death of Christ, but the Gospels don't give near as much detail concerning the spiritual significance as the book of Hebrews or the letters of Paul. Those letters emphasize the spiritual significance of the cross, so they leave it up to the Gospels to fill in the physical events and details. When he was nailed to the cross, how he was nailed to the cross, how he was treated before he was put on the cross, what happened on the cross, etc., etc. But Isaiah 53 is a beautiful blend of both the physical aspects of the death of Christ and the spiritual significance. Verse 2 of this chapter tells us, right at the end, when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Right in the middle of verse 2, we have the statement, he has no form or comeliness. That is, Jesus had no stately form or, or splendor to attract people to him. He had no special appearance that would call attention to himself. When people looked at him, they saw just another man. When Jesus was walking down the busy streets of Jerusalem, if a man had inadvertently bumped into him, when the person looked up to say, excuse me, he would not have noticed anything unique about the appearance of Jesus. That's what verse 2 is telling us. Jesus was a man, and he looked like a man. Sometimes we forget this because of the pictures or portraits or paintings we see of Jesus. So let me say what I've said many times in the past. Jesus did not have a halo. He did not have one as a baby. He did not have one as an adult. He didn't glow in the dark. Light didn't radiate from his face or from his body. He was a man. Jesus looked like any other man, so most people didn't realize that this man was God. He veiled his glory in such a way that he appeared to be just a man. He was like a king who temporarily puts on the garments of a peasant while at the same time remaining a king, even though it is not outwardly apparent that he's a king. Jesus looked like an ordinary man, but he was God. He veiled the glory of his deity, except on rare occasions, like on the Mount of Transfiguration, where he pulled back the veil slightly to reveal some of his glory. He seemed to do the same thing in John 18 when the soldiers came to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because when he said to them, I am, they said, whom do, he asked them, whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. And immediately they drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus was God, 
but he veiled his glory by becoming a man. That's what verse 2 of Isaiah 53 emphasizes. He was a man, looked like a man. And because he was a man, he was able to experience sorrow, pain, and death. Verse 3 says, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he not only experienced the heartbreak of being forsaken by his own disciples, God the Father also turned away from him, as Isaiah tells us here. The friends of Jesus weren't the only ones to turn their faces from him. God the Father also turned from him because he had to turn from him. He had to because the sinless Son of God became sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And because Jesus became sin positionally, legally, God the Father had to turn from him since God cannot have fellowship with sin. That is why darkness covered the face of the earth for three hours in the middle of the day. From noon until three, there was pitch black darkness covering the earth. Isaiah tells us in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Don't miss that last phrase. Jesus was smitten by God and afflicted by God. The Roman soldiers were not the only ones to smite Jesus. God the Father did too as a punishment for our sin. This is why we say Jesus died a a substitutionary death for us. The technical term is a vicarious death, a death in our place. Try to imagine how how much it hurt Jesus to be punished by his own father. Try to imagine how much it hurt the father to punish his sinless, precious son. They did it for us, beloved. That's what Isaiah says. For our griefs, our sorrows, our iniquities. The beginning of this verse says, depending on your translation, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Literally, the Hebrew text says, surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. What does Isaiah mean by that statement? Is there healing in the atonement, as some Christians teach today? In other words, because Jesus died for our sicknesses, does that mean that we don't have to be sick today if we just have enough faith? As you probably know, that's what some Christian groups teach. If you just have enough faith, you don't ever have to be sick because Jesus died for our sicknesses. And many who do hold to that view camp on the last phrase of verse 5, which says, And by his stripes we are healed. 
It's important to note that the word stripes here at the end of verse 5 is actually singular in the Hebrew text. Stripes, singular, not stripes, plural. Which means that the reference here is not to the stripes of Jesus, but rather to his death as a whole. And the healing of verse 5 is clearly spiritual healing, not physical healing, because the early part of the verse tells us what needed to be healed, namely our transgressions and our iniquities. So to use verse 5 to teach that Christians are automatically guaranteed perfect health with no sickness is a dangerous misuse of this verse. But I still haven't answered the question. Is there healing in the atonement? The answer to that question is yes. Yes. Physical, not only spiritual. There is physical healing in the atonement. But all those benefits will not be experienced in this life. Because sickness results from sin, which Jesus died to eradicate, the day will come when all sickness All disease will be removed. But that will not be experienced until the kingdom. However, because Jesus is the king of the kingdom, when he was here ministering on the earth, he healed extensively as a foretaste of the kingdom and as a verification that he is the king and the Messiah. So with that as background, let's turn together to our text in Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 gives us a sample of the extensive healing ministry of Jesus as a preview to the conditions of the kingdom when the king is finally embraced as king over all the earth. Mark chapter 1, please follow along as I read verses 29 through 39. Mark tells us, Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick, And those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases. And cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. As we have seen in the past few messages, Mark's gospel is characterized by fast-paced action. Mark portrays Jesus as always on the move, always ministering, always laboring, always touching people's lives. 
This section of the Gospel of Mark is a perfect example of that flavor of our Lord's life and ministry. What we just read describes to us this. Jesus leaves the synagogue after delivering a demon-possessed man. He heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law from a deathly fever. He heals the sick that were brought to him at night. He casts out demons. He pulls aside to pray. And he moves on to other towns to preach the gospel and to cast out demons. This was the life that Jesus lived during his ministry years. This was his life. This is what it involved or entailed. It could almost make you tired just thinking about it. Jesus was pressed from all sides. In fact, we'll see later in Mark's gospel, he was so pressed that on one occasion, he had to have his disciples have a boat nearby the Sea of Galilee so he could uh, escape, get to the boat, so that he wouldn't be crushed to death by the crowds. He was pressed from all sides. People were always wanting to talk with him, be around him, hear him speak, watch him act, feel his touch. That is why he had to purposely pull away from the crowds when he wanted to pray or when he needed to rest to be able to meet the demands of his ministry. There was constant pressure on him and he handled it flawlessly like the perfect servant that he was. Let's consider Mark's description in the verses that we just read together, beginning in verse 29. We read, Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. There's a sense in which we are jumping right into the middle of the story that Mark is telling us here in this first chapter. The reason why I say that is because this verse begins by saying, Now as soon as as they had come out of the synagogue. That raises the question, obviously, what synagogue? Back in verse 21, we are told that it was the synagogue of the city of Capernaum. Capernaum was the hometown of Peter, Andrew, James, John, possibly even Matthew. It was the city that Jesus adopted as the headquarters for his ministry in Galilee after he had been rejected in Nazareth. Of Galilee. There was a synagogue in Capernaum, and Simon Peter had a house right across from the synagogue. That is why, as Mark tells us here, as soon as the group exited the synagogue, they went to and entered Simon Peter's house. Verse 30 says, But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. Notice that this verse clearly refers to Simon Peter's wife. That statement, in and of itself, ought to dispel the commonly believed fallacy that Peter was the first pope and was unmarried. But this isn't the only verse that indicates that. So does 1 Corinthians 9, 5, which tells us that Peter's wife sometimes traveled with him on his missionary journeys. It is amazing to me that some people can read a verse like this and completely refuse to accept what it is saying because of what they have come to believe in their particular religion or because of their religious background. The same kind of thing happens with the commonly believed fallacy that Mary was a perpetual virgin. 
several passages of Scripture indicate that Joseph and Mary had children after Jesus was born. Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus. Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus. But afterwards, Joseph and Mary came together as husband and wife, and they had several children. But some people will not accept that because of their religious background. Now, I'm not trying to pick on one religion, but these ideas are so pervasive in society. And besides, the principle applies to any and all religions and religious points of view. We need to read the Bible and hear what the Bible says. Peter was married. He and his his wife had a home in Capernaum where Peter was in the fishing business with some others. Contrary to popular opinion, the fishing business was not a low-class kind of work. We often hear Peter and the other disciples described as, you know, a bunch of poor fishermen. Well, that's not really accurate. Peter and his partners had boats. They had hired workers. So the fishing business in first century Israel would have been comparable to a middle-class job in today's economy, or some scholars indicate maybe even upper-middle-class kind of work. It enabled Peter and his wife to have a home there in Capernaum. If you visit the ancient site of Capernaum today, which I know a number of you have, you can see some ruins, some archaeological ruins, that are believed to be the foundation stones of Peter's house. Without going into all the archaeological and historical evidence, suffice it to say that there is a good possibility, a very high possibility, that those ruins are from Peter's house. Not that it proves anything, but it is interesting to consider and realize. That is where this miracle took place. Jesus and his disciples left the synagogue, went right across, almost across the street, right down the street, directly into Simon Peter's house. And Peter's mother-in-law was there, sick with a fever. Understand, this was more than just a fever like you and I sometimes have when we have a cold or a sore throat or something like that. No, this was a fever that caused Peter's mother-in-law to be incapacitated, totally bedridden. She wasn't just feeling poorly as she went through the day. She was flat on her back. So it must have been some kind of serious condition. But regardless of what it was, it was no obstacle to our Lord. Verse 31 tells us, So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. Notice, please, that Jesus did not call a large crowd together. He did this in the privacy of Peter's home. It is so much different than the supposed healing miracles that go on today in stadiums and on televisions. As I've said many times in the past, if if the people who claim to have the gift of healing really have the gift of healing, then why not go to the hospitals and step inside the private rooms of the patients and heal them? Or why not go to uh, the homes of people in the privacy of their home where they are bedridden and heal them? 
I've heard a lot of healing claims over the last 30 years, but I don't think I've ever heard someone claim to heal a person in private. That's not to say that no one ever has claimed that, but I've never heard it, even though I've heard many supposed healers tell about their healing. There was no showboating in the healing ministry of Jesus. There was no publicity, nothing like that. He entered Peter's house, and when he was told about Peter's mother-in-law's condition, Mark tells us he touched her hand, he lifted her up, and he healed her. Now, because we're not Jewish, we could very easily and quickly pass by the significance of that little statement that Mark makes here when he says, he took her by the hand and lifted her up. Jewish law forbade touching persons with many kinds of fever. It was against Jewish law. But Jesus reached out, not against the law of God, by the way, Jewish law, law that had been added. But Jesus reached out and touched this dear lady's hand. That would have caused a gasp by anybody standing around observing it. The touch did not defile the healer, but, the he- but healed the defiled. And to emphasize how sudden the change was, the last phrase in the verse says, and immediately the fever left her and she served them. Moments before, she had been debilitated by a serious fever. But when Jesus healed her, there was no gradual getting better process. She was healed instantly and completely. She didn't need to recover from the effects of the fever. She didn't need to gain strength from being bedridden. She was healed instantly and completely. As you can imagine, word got out. The news spread like wildfire. So in verse 32, Mark tells us, At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. Mark wants us to understand that the ministry of Jesus didn't end when the day was done. He didn't clock out. His ministry continued on into the evening. Scores of sick and demon-possessed people were brought to where he was staying. Verse 33 says, And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Not only were sick and demon-possessed people brought to Jesus, but scores of interested onlookers gathered to see what this man would do. What will Jesus do about all of these sick people, all of these demon-possessed people? They had heard about the demon-possessed man who was delivered back in verses 21 through 28. And they had heard about Peter's mother-in-law, deathly ill with fever. This resulted in virtually everyone gathering where Jesus was staying. And verse 34 tells us, Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. There were so many that Mark doesn't even try to delineate them. He simply mentions that it was many. Some of those who were brought to Jesus were demon-possessed. Others were smitten with various kinds of sickness. And please notice that Mark is clear that he has in mind two different categories. 
two categories. It's important to stress this point because some people, some Christians, well-meaning Christians, try to equate sickness and demon possession. What I mean is, some people teach that all sickness is the result of demonic activity. In other words, if you're sick, it's because a demon is attacking you in some way. And therefore, if you're able to drive out the demon, or resist the demon, or deal with the demon, then you can do away with the sickness. According to this view, if you are sick, it's because you have a demon doing it in some way. But the gospel writers are careful to make sure that we understand that this is not the case. Demons may produce sickness. There are examples in the gospels where demons produced sickness. So that can happen. It does happen in some cases. But sickness, please hear this, is not to be equated with demonic activity. Many sicknesses are the result of germs. And many kinds of infirmities are the result of genetic disorders due to life in a sin-cursed world. So we need to be very careful about what we say concerning the relationship between sickness and demonic activity. Some Christians wrongly equate the two, and that can cause immense confusion and hurt in people's lives. Mark clearly tells us that Jesus healed many who were sick with various diseases. That's one category. And he cast out many demons. That's a second issue. And please notice something else about Mark's description here. Very interesting in light of our our day and age in which many things are taught in this arena that are not really biblical. Notice that Mark says nothing about the people's faith being the basis for their healing. A close look at the miracles of Jesus in the Gospels will show that sometimes that was the case and sometimes it was not. What I mean is, you've read the Gospel, you know that there are times when Jesus says, according to your faith, Let it be done unto you. In other words, sometimes faith was the basis for Jesus' miracles. But many times it was not the basis. And in fact, there are some occasions where the person doesn't even know who Jesus was, but Jesus just sovereignly chooses to heal the person. So Mark says nothing about faith being the issue when he mentions the multitudes that Jesus healed and delivered from demons. But not getting sidetracked into those issues, I want us to think about what Mark is saying here. Look at, look at this statement. Jesus healed and healed and healed. Sickness was rampant in first century Israel. Demon possession was rampant in first century Israel. And Jesus confronted these things everywhere he went. He confronted sickness He confronted demon possession. Listen to some of these statements and try to allow the magnitude of what these statements say to to impact your thinking. Listen to these statements. Matthew 9.35 says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease. Matthew 12.15 says, But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Matthew 14, 14 says, And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them, and he healed their sick. 
Matthew 15:30 says, Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet. Look at that picture. It's as if they carry these people from who knows how far away, and they get there and they just drop them at Jesus' feet. Here, Jesus, only you can do something about this. And the rest of that verse says, and he healed them. Matthew 19, 2 says, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Matthew 21, 14 says, then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple where he was preaching and teaching, and he healed them. It sounds like I'm reading the same verse over and over again. I'm not. Those are all different accounts. And you could add to that Luke 4.40, which says, When the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Luke 6.17-19 says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him for power went out from him and he healed them all. And Luke 9.11 says, But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him, and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. Those statements are almost mind-boggling. If we stop to really hear what they are saying, how much Jesus healed. I mean, no wonder John says in John 21, that if everything Jesus did was recorded one after the other, it would be virtually impossible to record in the books. Uh, the world could not contain the books. It just was incessant, continuous. For those of us who live in a society where basic good health is accepted largely as a matter of course, it is difficult to appreciate the impact Jesus' healing ministry had. For a brief time, it's as if for a brief time disease and other physical afflictions were virtually eliminated from the land of Israel as Jesus went throughout the land healing thousands upon thousands. And that is no overstatement. But not only did Jesus heal sickness, he cast out demons and didn't allow them to speak. Notice what Mark says here. He emphasizes that At the end of verse 34, he says, Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow them, the demons, to speak. And then Mark explains with this statement, because they knew him. Isn't that interesting? Because they knew him. They, they, demons have perfect theology. They knew Jesus at this point better than the disciples did. It's just that they didn't want anything to do with the truth. Therefore, Jesus didn't let them speak. He didn't want demons to be spouting the truth. Why? Because that is exactly what is so confusing about demons. Demons confuse people by speaking the truth. When unblemished truth is spoken by evil beings, it is very confusing. It's very perplexing. So Jesus refused to let that happen. He didn't want his notoriety to be spread throughout the land by demons saying who he was. They knew him. 
Mark makes that clear. They knew him. He knew that they knew him. He didn't want any of their publicity. Verse 35 says, Now in the morning, having, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary or deserted place, and there he prayed. This is a somewhat startling statement. We know this took place, but it's still somewhat shocking to think about the Son of God needing to pray. But he did. This is stated many times in the gospel records. Jesus prayed. Jesus depended on his Father. And he knew that in the very early hours of the morning was the only time for him to slip away to be alone to pray. But even then, he couldn't be alone for long. Verse 36 tells us, And Simon, that is Simon Peter, Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus knew that. That's why he pulled away. It sounds contradictory, but it's not. Here, here is the Lord, the perfect servant, meeting the needs of the multitudes, and yet he knows everyone's looking for him, so he pulls away. How, how do we reconcile that? Jesus understood this important principle. The spiritual leader who is always available isn't worth a thing when he is available. Jesus understood that. So he told his men, he pulled away at times, and then on this occasion, when he was finally discovered, they found him, he told his men it was time to move on. Verse 38, But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. As we saw last week, the ministry of Jesus was based in Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, but he never intended for it to be limited to Capernaum. It was never his intention. There were others who needed to hear the gospel, who needed to hear the good news, who needed to hear about the kingdom. So verse 39 says, And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee. As I mentioned in the past, Josephus tells us there were 204 cities slash villages in Galilee at this time. So he goes to all of these villages and cities, and Mark says he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. That summarizes the ministry of Jesus right there. He just continued to make the circuit to go to town after town, village after village, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, casting out demons everywhere he went. He cast out demons for at least two purposes. Number one, it was an act of compassion to deliver people from their demonic bondage. That's obvious. That's, that's obvious it's right on the surface there. But two, we need to understand he cast out demons because it was an authentication of his message. He preached with authority. Mark has already told us that. He taught with authority. And the fact that he could cast out demons attested to his authority, and it verified his authority. So you could say it this way. His actions were authoritative, and his message was authoritative. That's why I've titled this message, Authority on Display. His actions were authoritative. His message was authoritative. And what was his message? Do you remember his message? 
to the people then was basically the same as it is today. Back in verse 15, we are told that his message was repent and believe the gospel. That was his message. Repent, believe the gospel. That's what people needed to do then. That's what people need to do today. In fact, let me be very personal. That's what you need to do today. If you have never surrendered your life to Christ, you need to repent and believe the gospel. Repent means you turn from your sin. You let go of whatever is holding you back. And you believe in the good news that there is salvation and a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's obvious as you read through the Gospels and analyze the ministry of Jesus that all of the healing he did, all of the uh, delivering of people from demonic possession that he did, all of that, as important as it was, as compassionate as it was, it was clearly secondary in his mind to the preaching of the Gospel. Because healing someone of their sickness, healing people of their sicknesses, is only a temporal issue. It's important but it's only temporal. Jesus understood that the eternal is far more significant. So yes, Jesus healed. Yes, Jesus cast out demons. But Jesus always made sure to preach the gospel because his greater concern was the eternal destiny of the people to whom he ministered. It was that eternal perspective that compelled him to go everywhere preaching the gospel. And so I say to you here today that that is the issue. That is the issue in your life. It should be the central issue in your life. The, the cares of this life, they are important. But where do you stand eternally? What is your eternal destiny? Have you repented of sin and believed the gospel so that your eternal destiny is with the Lord Jesus Christ? That is what Mark would want us to see from this text we've considered this morning, more important, that is what the Lord Jesus would want us to see. Let's bow together as we close. And I ask you as we close out our service this morning, as important as your life situations are, as important as the circumstances of your life are, is the primary focus of your life eternity? Is your eternal destiny right? Is your eternal destiny set? Have you repented and believed the gospel? Repented of your sin and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you have not, or if there's any doubt in your mind, then hear what Jesus said all the way back 2,000 years ago in the first century. Hear his message as if he were standing before us today. Hear his message. Repent and believe the gospel. That message is just as relevant today as when Jesus preached it throughout all the cities and villages of Galilee. Repent and believe the gospel. Father, may we see that as central from the text that we've considered this morning. May we see that as central for our own lives. Oh, how easily we are caught up in the circumstances of life and the events of life and, and we fail to give thought to eternity and we fail to focus on what is really most important and that is the fact that we will spend eternity somewhere. We are eternal beings and will spend eternity somewhere. 
I pray that truth, that reality, would grip our minds this day. Those of us who already do know and love the Lord Jesus, may that grip our hearts so that our focus will be right. And certainly we would pray that for anyone with us this morning who is not ready for eternity. May that reality be used by your Spirit to grip that person's life so that he or she will repent and believe the gospel. The good news that there is salvation in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.